Beeson welcoming you back to A History of England and to chapter 107, in which we find Viscount Melbourne starting his second stint as Prime Minister. He took advantage of this being a new administration to get rid of some unwanted figures in his government, displaying a degree of steel surprising in a man so laid back. Take his firing of Henry Brougham, a prominent figure in the campaign for the Great Reform Act and the abolition of slavery. The trouble with Brougham was that he could switch position drastically at the drop of a hat and generally only to favour his own advancement. Even Brougham's colleagues have given him nicknames such as Beelzebub, the Arch Fiend, or Old Wicked Shifts. None of that stopped Brougham demanding an explanation when Melbourne fired him as Lord Chancellor. It is a very disagreeable task, Melbourne replied, to have to say to a statesman that his character is injured in the public estimation. It is still more unpleasant to have to add that you consider this to be his own fault. I must, however, state plainly that your conduct was one of the principal causes of the dismissal of the late ministry and that it forms the most popular justification of that step. When roused, it seems Melbourne was less toothless than one might expect. Brougham never served in government again. Melbourne failed, however, in his desire to get rid of Lord Palmerston, his foreign secretary. Palmerston was pursuing a liberal foreign policy, backing constitutional governments against autocratic ones. This was a great deal too activist for Melbourne, who felt in any case that foreign countries weren't any better for Britain or, as he said, for England, just for being more liberal. All these chambers and free presses in other countries are very fine things, he said. But depend upon it, they are still as hostile to England as the old governments. Palmerston, though, was too significant a figure to dump, and it might have been dangerous to make an enemy of him. So he remained as Foreign Secretary. Mostly Melbourne was a fan of the easy life. What then did he achieve in government? As you'd expect, the answer is not a lot. The drive for reform was losing momentum. The Whigs did, however, produce one further change in local government. Closed corporations made up of appointees who could preserve control by a single group more or less indefinitely were done away with in England and Wales. They were replaced by councils elected by ratepayers on much the same franchise as in the Great Reform Act, though slightly limited by a three-year residence requirement. This kind of limited reform meant the Whigs stopped so far short of democracy, and they had in any case done so little for the working class, that a new movement emerged a couple of years into Melbourne's second government and extending into the next decade. It put forward a charter of reforms, giving it the name Chartism. Seeing that the reforms already achieved, however modest, had been driven by popular pressure on Parliament, Chartists set out to use the same peaceful tactics again, though there were a few instances of violence too. They had six demands. Universal manhood suffrage giving all sane men not serving sentences in jail the vote from the age of 21 the secret ballot to end intimidation of electors, 
No property qualification for MPs, so a poor man could be elected to Parliament. MPs to be paid, so such a poor man could afford to be elected. Constituencies all to have roughly equal populations. Annual elections to Parliament. Chartism failed and was ultimately suppressed. But, curiously, the first five demands have all been met since, with the early parliaments the only exception. Britons don't want to have to vote every year. There was another achievement for Elizabeth Fry, the champion of prison reforms and of women's rights. She had campaigned against penal transportation and, in 1838, the Melbourne government stopped transportation to New South Wales. It was a small step since transportation to Australia continued for some decades until 1852 to Van Diemen's Land, now Tasmania, and to Western Australia until 1868. But it was a first and welcome step towards ending a shameful practice. The thinking behind transportation was that crime wasn't committed by ordinary people in specific circumstances, but by very specific people in the so-called criminal classes. If they could be transported elsewhere, then crime would inevitably reduce. Unsurprisingly, that didn't happen. Besides, though transportation was brutal as far as the journey was concerned, and in some of the penal colonies set up in Australia or in the notorious Norfolk Island, pretty much a concentration camp, in general many convicts chose to stay on at the end of their sentences, suggesting that as well as being expensive, transportation wasn't actually much of a punishment. With or without Fry's humanitarian campaign, keeping it going made little sense. Incidentally, talking about Fry, in 1840 she founded Britain's first nurse training school after visiting one in Germany. It would make a major contribution to British forces in a war that broke out in the following decade, as we'll see. What else can we say about Melbourne? Maybe we can learn most about him from stories concerning two women who would play a major role in his time as Prime Minister. One of these was Caroline Norton. Her husband, George Norton, was a drunkard who abused her and their marriage eventually fell apart. Divorce at the time spelt the end of reputation and social standing, especially for a woman, especially if the grounds for the divorce were her adultery. We've talked before about Melbourne's womanising, which may well have had a dark side in whipping sessions with young girls. Melbourne was a widower by this time, and Caroline was one of several women to whom he turned for company. I leave it to you to judge whether, given Melbourne's track record, company in this context meant an affair. I'm not engaging in any speculation. On the other hand, speculation is what George Norton was all about, though mostly in the sense of speculating to make a quick and easy buck. At the time, you could sue for criminal conversation, adultery, which was then an offence. That might be profitable if your victim was the man in what was, since a monarch's loss of authority, the most powerful position in the land. 
What might a Prime Minister be prepared to pay to avoid an embarrassing court appearance? Norton sued Melbourne. It's possible that disreputable figures in the Conservative Party were encouraging Norton, a former Tory MP himself. Indeed, in the face of the scandal, Melbourne went so far as to offer to resign. The King, whose own dallying with women was notorious, said no. Even the Duke of Wellington, though the leader of the Conservatives in the Lords, distanced himself from plotters in his own party by saying that he wouldn't serve in a successor government if Melbourne's fell as a result of the scandal. Of course, Wellington was also a womanizer who prided himself in particular on affairs with two women in Paris who were both former lovers of Napoleon's. Melbourne stood firm, the case came to court on the 23rd of June 1836, and George Norton lost spectacularly. The jury cleared Melbourne of all wrongdoing without even leaving the jury box. He was free, if not entirely easy, and could continue in office. What about Caroline? Her husband had snatched their three boys, as was his legal right at the time, and left them with his family in Scotland. His divorce petition had failed, but the law didn't allow her to ask for a divorce herself. She revealed herself as a woman of indomitable courage as, far from being crushed by her husband's abusive behaviour, she became a forceful campaigner for women's rights. Her first success came in 1839 with the passage of the Custody of Infants Act. It gave divorced mothers custody of children up to seven and access after that age. That didn't help her since it didn't apply in Scotland where her husband had left the children and it was difficult to enforce anyway, but at least it was a step in the right direction. She also helped secure the passage of the 1857 Matrimonial Causes Act, which left many discriminatory provisions against women in place, but was again a small reform towards a fairer divorce system. As for Melbourne, though they couldn't maintain their old intimacy, he did at least help her out financially. Now let's talk about the other woman who was to play so big a part in Melbourne's time as Prime Minister. On the 20th of June 1837, King William IV died. He was followed onto the throne by an 18-year-old woman. Alexandrina Victoria, to be known as Victoria, was on the throne. The Victorian age had arrived. Incidentally, she didn't inherit the other kingdom her uncle William IV had held, that of Hanover in Germany. It didn't allow women to mount the throne. Another uncle, George III's fifth son, Augustus Ernest, took over instead. The personal union between Britain and Hanover, through a shared monarch, that had endured since 1714, therefore now came to an end. Victoria had undergone a bizarre childhood under the thumb of her mother, the widowed Duchess of Kent. The Duchess was supported by John Conroy, who managed her finances and was probably also her lover. They kept Victoria practically as a recluse. On one of the rare occasions when they allowed her to visit her uncle, the King, he publicly roared at the Duchess for isolating his niece from him. And they were desperate for the king to die before Victoria turned 18, so that a regency might be set up 
which they could run. Fortunately for Victoria, that hadn't happened, and now she could break free of them both, which she did forcefully. An immediate and highly symbolic act was to have a bed moved out of the bedroom she'd been obliged to share with her mother right into adulthood. With that background, one of the things Victoria had certainly never been able to do was gain a sufficient understanding of the politics of the kingdom she'd inherited. She needed a guide and mentor. And who could be better than a man who'd long indulged a taste for relationships with attractive young women, most of them not involving whips, and who, what's more, happened to hold the highest political office in the land? With little pen portraits of the leading figures of the day and tutoring in British constitutional procedure and the royal protocol Victoria had to follow, Melbourne set about training the Queen in her new role. Normally that would be a task for a secretary, not for a prime minister, but Melbourne didn't want another baneful influence at work against him with the monarch after having faced William IV's hostility and, above all, he enjoyed this role. He could spend hours in carefree pleasure chatting with a star-struck young woman who happened to be his queen. There's no suggestion that the relationship between them was ever sexual. Melbourne was 60 when Victoria was 18, and the relationship seems to have been entirely one of a daughter with a surrogate father, or of a disciple with a gentle teacher. He certainly invested heavily in the relationship, as the Queen's diaries make clear. When she was in London, he would see her twice a day, and they would write to each other as often as three times daily. Even when she moved down to her castle in Windsor, they kept up the correspondence, and he would travel down to see her, sometimes to stay. Melbourne's biographer David Cecil calculates that during the first five years of Victoria's reign, Melbourne may have dedicated five hours a day to her. That suggests he had little time for anything else. That, sadly, turned into a problem. We'll find out about that the week after next, because next week is dedicated to a man who was very much the opposite of Melbourne, a real activist in his government. Lord Palmerston. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.